Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Here's a new update on the Type Check project. Martin was a guest on episode 72, and there were some cool updates to share about what was uh, announced at this year's ElixirConf EU. So we've got a link to the uh, show where we talked with him. Version 0.12 was released, timed with the presentation. So here's some of the big changes in there. TypeCheck now supports all the built-in types and all types in, in all the modules of Elixir's standard library. So that's, that's incredible. Last time we talked to him, I think there was still a couple he needed to do. So it's done now. Now, also integration with Credo. Uh, so that's pretty cool. New functions to extract normal types and specs from already compiled modules that don't use TypeCheck, like, for example, dependencies modules and build type check types and checks from, from those. So, wow, this is, this is sounded pretty cool. <laughs> There's another one. Another cool thing is, is def struct bang, the macro, this is new, to define a struct at the same time and specify the types of it and its fields. This is helpful because rather than having a separate def struct and then later an at type and later app enforce keys with a lot of repeated things in there. Now, now you can just do deathstruck bang, you know, like yell it at your computer and it's just going to do it. The deathstruck, the type and the enforce keys. That sounds pretty cool. That feature right there is, is big enough that other people have created their own libraries just to do that one thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's awesome that it's just becomes part of type check too. Yeah. So if you want to check out episode 72 for a deeper dive on that project, give it a listen. And next up, Using a mix install script, Gary Rennie got an entire Phoenix Live View app running in a single file in about 70 lines of code. We'll have a link to where you can see this. And so this is part of the mix install examples GitHub repo, where people are showing how you can use mix install, the kinds of scripts you can do, what you can pull in with libraries. It's a great place to get ideas if you're wanting to build some more powerful scripts. So also got a link in there to a screenshot that shows it in action. And really all it's doing as a live view app is it has simple buttons for up and down and a counter. Really, it's just a cool example of minimalism. And it demonstrates the bits that are actually required to get everything set up and running. It's not anything I would actually do myself, like to create a Phoenix live view app running this way. But I think it's a great demonstration of what's possible that really with these mix install scripts, you can do a lot. You can actually run servers or long running processes and how you would actually get that set up and make that work. So I think it's very cool. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for like replicating an issue, especially in like a PR or an issue on GitHub, right? You, you just put in that little bit of code there, mix install your thing, get your live view up and uh, exhibit, you know, and show off the issue in a, in a very easy copy pasteable way. So this could be like a godsend to to some maintainers out there. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's a good example. Uh, so there's a new NX library called NX Signal that was uh, shared by the author uh, Paolo Valente. And it's a, digna, a digital signal processor for, for NX. So I'm looking at the, the repo now. It doesn't really say anything, but there are some pretty cool like examples, live book examples in there. This could be pretty interesting. Normally, when I think of machine learning, I think of taking in a lot of like visual data, right? That's the common example we get. You get a, do you, is this, is this a picture of a hot dog or not? Right. In this case, this is about audio, which is also a 
pretty interesting. It's just a, it's a really cool thing to see that, that Elixir and NX are getting some tools, you know, built for uh, audio processing as well. I don't know. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. And next up, Jose pointed us in the direction of an interesting GitHub project. So he teased it saying TorchVision models exported to ONNX loaded into Elixir's Axon and running inside a Phoenix LiveView app. It's like all the text he says, and he points to this GitHub repo. So like, let's break that down a little bit. So TorchVision is a library that's part of the PyTorch project. PyTorch is a Python project. And it's open source machine learning framework. And I believe from what I could gather, TorchVision is around image recognition within that library. ONNX is an open format built to represent machine learning models. So we have a link to the website for that. So what that means is if I can take a machine learning model that was already trained and done in this framework or that framework, and I can export them to the ONNX format, then it becomes more transportable. I can take it to somewhere else. So then this project called Live ONNX says it can import several different model types. So this sounds like you could take a PyTorch machine learning model, export it to the ONNX format, then load it into a Phoenix Live View and run it using Axon. So why is that a big deal? Because those data scientists and those ML people at your company, that means they don't have to switch to Elixir for you to start putting their models into your production app. And if that's what it is, then we certainly have to wait and hear more and make sure we, that actually is what I, we think it is. We'll have to stay tuned and we'll do our best to keep you up on those developments as they come out. Next up, a short update with Ino. Ino, A-I-N-O, is a uh, alternative framework to Phoenix by Eric Ostrich. It is uh, updated to 0.5. So great to see. I haven't, heard, I haven't been keeping in touch with, with Ino, but I, I saw this and thought, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Ino is out there and we have a, another web framework that's coming up, uh, which is really cool. So 0.5 includes uh, better param key parsing uh, to have nested values. And it's changing up how the request is dealt with by using a custom struct. Uh, reminds me a little bit of what plug is doing maybe uh, with that with that token struct there that's, you know, every, everything gets stuffed into as a request uh, turns into a response. Anyway, go give uh, Ino a shot and see what you think. It's a nice basic, you know, uh, web framework that I can tell so far, but I'm really excited to see where that goes. And next up, Jose Valim tweeted a new graphic teasing something new in the NX land. So he didn't give any explanation, just he's done this way in the past, back when NX was first announced. So we haven't seen this for a while. So if I just describe this image, I have a link to it in the show notes, so you can go see it for yourself. But it's a cute little numbat sitting on a stump in a forest with a little train of bee-like insects flying overhead. So hopefully we learn more about what this represents soon. Speaking of teasings, Jose also mentioned that there are three major announcements this month coming at ElixirConf EU. So we are all staying tuned for that, and we'll let you know as soon as we learn. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, James Arthur. James, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, James, I think this is going to be a fun topic because I love the idea of CRDTs, right? And just this whole ability that they give us to build distributed systems. Because I first learned about CRDTs with Chris McCord talking about LiveView. 
And you have something that you've been working on called vaccine that CRDTs plays a heavy role in. And when I started reading about this, I was like, wow, this sounds really fascinating. I want to understand this. Maybe you can just like, what is the the elevator pitch for what vaccine is? How would you describe what is we're going to be talking about today? So vaccine is like a, a new type of low latency global database. And so it kind of uses CRDTs within the database to basically allow you to kind of merge changes that are made across the world uh, without conflicts. That is cool. So I, I'm really excited to be able to talk deeper about that and how that works with our Elixir applications and what that means for how we can build things and solve different kinds of problems. But before we get into all that, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Well, I'm British originally, uh, as you might be able to hear, but uh, I live now in uh, Istria in Western Croatia. My wife is actually from Croatia and, and a couple of years ago we kind of moved. We got two young kids and we escaped Brexit and COVID and kind of uh, headed for the sunshine. Uh, so I'm currently, I'm, I'm in a sort of small hilltop village in the Istrian hills with a, if I peer my head out of the window, I can just see the Adriatic. And if I peer the other way, I get nice sort of crumbly Italian hill towns. <laughs> that sounds like a dream. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of uh, vineyards and olive groves. Yeah. Very neat. It's a bit like moving to the past, which is kind of lovely when you've got young kids. Yeah. But you still have high-speed internet, so. That was, I got an industrial strength aerial mounted on the front of the house, point, pointed at a nearby 4G tower. So it needed a bit of engineering surgery, but we got that. Over here where I'm at, we have 5G, and I know that that's supposed to make things uh, faster, but in my experience, it's actually made things way worse. <laughs> I don't know why. I remember LTE 4G, and I was like, oh, this is it. We have arrived. And then we upgraded to 5G, and it's like, wait, we took us somehow we took a step back. I don't know why. Uh, anyway, that's pretty cool. Maybe 6G will fix it for you. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my my confidence is built uh, now. Now that we've now we're on the five G, just need more G's. So I am curious though, James. Like this system, is it built in Elixir? We're we're kind of a database system on top of a database. So there's a very cool project called Antidote DB, which is an Erlang based database. So it's kind of it's also on the Beam, um, but that's implemented in Erlang, and that's the kind of core database system which we're building on. And that's actually being developed by a group of academics over the last sort of decade or so. And then we're building some layers on top of that, which are in Elixir, and then integrating it in for people who are developing uh, Elixir applications primarily through Ecto. Were you an Elixir developer yourself, or did you come through Erlang, or where is your path to this project and where you are now? Yeah, I mean, I... I'm a kind of uh, a, a generalist. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a software engineer um, and a kind of entrepreneur. And I went the sort of route of kind of Python, Ruby, Elixir. So I've sort of, I've definitely come through the Elixir pathway. So James, you mentioned this idea that like CRDTs are built into the database. So maybe we should first just kind of talk about what CRDTs are. I know not all of the people listening to this have heard the term necessarily or are familiar with what that would mean. I mentioned up at the beginning that Chris McCord, when he first started talking about live view and presence, it was presence really that that feature that used CRDTs to communicate between nodes to help figure out and reconcile who's online because people can be online connected to different nodes in the network and you want a global view of that. And that's when I first started learning about CRDTs. So then I started looking them up and researching them. And so I understand them to be, you know, conflict-free replicated data types. And I think there's some simple ways to approach them. You know, for the purpose of our discussion here today, how do you think about and describe CRDTs? 
So, I mean, it's exactly as you say. They are the data types that are designed to be used in a distributed system where you have some degree of replication. And they are conflict-free in the sense that you can apply two concurrent rights to the same data type, and you can kind of be guaranteed that both of the changes will be merged in rather than having to, say, reject one of the rights to accept the other. I mean, I think they're, they're very, very interesting from a number of perspectives, and they're, they're a kind of probably a key primitive or building block of a lot of different data systems that we're going to be using in the future. One of the things that they enable is offline first workloads. So if, for instance, if you write into a CRDT, say in the client, you can kind of be guaranteed that when it syncs in the background that your changes are not going to be rejected. So sort of one of the things that it enables is, in a sense, new types of local first or peer-to-peer -peer software. We have CRDTs in the database. In, in a sense, I think like, like partly CRDTs were invented as part of a kind of wider body of uh, research work that was towards um, trying to push consistency and integrity guarantees for uh, AP databases. So basically, when, you, when you're in this space of uh, distributed databases, where you might have, say, one cluster in America and one cluster in Japan, you have different types of geodistributed databases, and you run up against the famous CAP theorem, which is that either you basically have to pick between consistency or availability, which correlates to low latency. And so there was a, there's a bunch of research which comes from the perspective of trying to strengthen consistency for systems that sort of choose the AP side of the CAP theorem. Uh, and CRDTs are a key building block of that. And what it basically means is that if you have somebody making a write in America at the same time as somebody's making a write in Japan, when those writes kind of replicate across the internet and kind of come to the other side, if you're using conflict-free data types, then you can be guaranteed that those writes kind of merge in, again, rather than having conflicts. And that's very important because it allows you to accept a write with certainty kind of at the edge immediately and then you can be guaranteed that it will be kind of consistently merged in. It's related to consistency because basically, um, if you imagine that you don't have a conflict-free data type and you were saying, say you end up rejecting one of these concurrent transactions, then you have one region with one set of data and another region with another set of data, and that's how they get inconsistent. So if you want to be sure that basically everything ends up with the same data, which means that they're all consistent, then you need to have this types of kind of merge algorithms that can guarantee that everything gets merged in, basically. I think the simplest way that I understood how CRDTs work, and I think, you know, for you, dear listener, if you're like, what, what is this they're talking about? What are, what are these weird data types? I think the simplest one that I heard that makes sense to me is, like, imagine uh, a feature like a, a Facebook kind of thing where someone clicks a like. One way to do that would be to say, oh, the current like number on this is 142, and I want to increment that and set it to 143. So that would be a database where you're saying, set this new value to 143. Well, that's where you get these conflicts because someone else some, in a different part of the world, has they've, they've clicked it and they're trying to set it to 124. And now what's it going to be? And, and you're not capturing all of the data because someone's getting overwritten. So the alternative is you say, I want to send an increment. I want to increment by one that this was clicked. Or if I'm removing my like, I'm decrementing. And so when you're talking about just increments and decrements, those merge very nicely because it's additive properties of math. You know, it just, it all comes together eventually. When you're dealing with more complex data structures, I'm sure there's more that we want to think about in how we do that. Is that a fair way to kind of introduce this? 
Yeah, totally. I mean, a, there's a key concept in these called commutativity, which basically is kind of what, what you're just drawing out with the example with the counters, where what it means is that if you have, say, a set of rights to a particular field, the rights are commutative if it doesn't matter which order they come in. Now, if you think about something like assigning a value to a field, like, say, name equals James or name equals Mark, then those are obviously not commutative because it matters which one, say, comes last and kind of overwrites the previous one. Whereas if you're working with a counter, it's a perfect example where if you have four increments to a counter, it doesn't matter what order they come in, you're still going to get to the same result. And so there's a great thing called the CALM theorem, which is a really interesting research paper, which basically sort of draws that connection between if things are commutative uh, and also if they kind of increase monotonically, then that kind of gives you, that's the sort of basis for this kind of conflict-free approach. And exactly as you say, you, you, you go from, say, a counter as a very simple example of something that is commutative to then trying to construct more complex data structures that exhibit the same property, but for instance, to support something like text editing or kind of uh, maps or kind of arrays and, and so forth. Um, and the internals of CRDT are pretty complex. It's kind of lattice and sort of lattices and matrix maths and stuff. But ultimately, it just means that uh, if you imagine this sort of distributed database with asynchronous replication, events get delayed, things take different times to get there. And it's a way of saying, right, it doesn't matter what order these operations come in at, it'll all end up with the same value in the end. So no one takes on a mission like this without a reason or, a, <laughs> a, you know, it's not just like, wow, I just want to, you know, I just want to try and create academic research, right? This is for my PhD. I'm just trying to make up stuff. You know, that's not what's going on here when it's a full-time job and this is what you're doing. So can you share anything about the kind of system that you're building that it needs these types of properties? One thing I should note maybe at this point is, uh, the research base is very much not mine. <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur in a way, and with Vaccine, uh, we're fortunate to be we're working with the co-inventors of CRDTs. We have a number of academics involved in the in the project, but it's very much uh, their work rather than mine. One of the key obvious problems is write path latency, for example. So you have a lot of trends towards serving your application or your functions close to your user. So as the kind of the internet has more and more kind of global users for applications. If you've got a server in, say, US East 1, it doesn't really cut it anymore if you've got users accessing from other continents around the world. So typically that leads to trying to geo-distribute your hosting. So you might have servers in different kind of continents or around the world. But then if your uh, application still wants to talk to a database, you come up against this sort of hard problem of how do you also have your data close to your users in a consistent way? And the simple, there's simple approaches to this, like say read replicas and kind of copying your data. But if you look at write path latency, which is trying to have kind of fast writes by having the data that you can, data servers that you can write to close to your geo distributed app servers, then that's a really hard problem. And that's where you sort of run up against these fundamental constraints of the cap theorem and so forth. And I think basically at a high level, one of the, one of the things that's really attractive about this type of technology is that in a way, it, it's one of the answers to how to engineer around the cap theorem. So I mentioned that with vaccine, we're building on the antidote DB system. Antidote DB implements a protocol called cure. And the cure protocol is called that because it is the cure to consistency under partition, i.e. it's sort of one of the cures towards the cap working around the cap theorem. And, and what that means in practice is that if you're trying to make your application feel snappy for your users, at the moment, often there's, there's, 
techniques like uh, using optimistic writes uh, and sort of caching. And these all introduce a whole bunch of complexity into your app because you say write to a local store, it kind of syncs, you can get conflicts, you can have aborts and rollbacks, you have to code around it. And so what, what we're really trying to do with this is to be able to provide snappiness and certainty that simplifies the development of responsive global applications. That sounds pretty exciting. Like we just had a conversation with another gentleman that is uh, working on something called Lightstream, which is about bringing the database a little bit closer to where the app is deployed. And this would be in an environment where the app would be deployed closer to the user. And then there would be a way to synchronize those, you know, behind the, the behind the scenes. But the idea was to abstract that all that complexity, all that hard stuff away from the user. Right. Uh, oh, and then the user in this case would be the, the developer of the app. And in your case, it sounds like you're doing something very similar. You got a different approach to it. And that, and that sounds good. Where I'm wondering is, uh, I heard you say at the beginning that the CRDT, you know, merging and the algorithm for keeping these things consistent is happening in the database. I had the impression, and maybe I'm wrong and help me out here, that usually this, this resolution is happening outside of the database before it hits the database. But in your case and, and in your solution, you're doing that inside of the database. Is, is that a is that a key differentiator? And is that how you're able to keep it simple for developers uh, like the everyday developer like me? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I mean, it, it definitely, because one of the things that CRDTs can do is allow you to write with certainty, say, in the client. It can support these kind of offline B2B kind of workflows. Whereas exactly what we have is a slightly different approach where you have the CRDTs inside the database and that allows us to do consistent replication between geo-distributed database clusters. I think, I mean, Lightstream, I think is a fantastic example, right? And it, it is exactly one of the things that shows you that once you have geo-distributed application hosting, like with a platform like Fly, then you kind of need to, to kind of look at a solution to the data layer that's more kind of edge native. The way Lightstream works, for example, is you have an SQL light database kind of embedded in your application. And then it does some clever stuff to basically kind of keep the write ahead log open. And then it's sort of replicating it's sort of every second or so. It's kind of sending pages of the wow into, say, storage. With our system, you can imagine basically, if you imagine that kind of wow based replication, we can basically hook into that read the changes that are coming through. We we essentially write those then into a CRDT data structure. There's then We then replicate uh, across these geodistributed clusters following this CURE protocol. CURE technically, it, it, it um, ensures transactional causal consistency. So it's a sort of rigorous transactional consistency model. And then you can imagine basically that if you have a, a distributed cluster, then the data is kind of replicated in the CRDT layer, and then the materialized value is kind of written out into, say, the Lightstream database in another region. So in, in a way, you can take the type of technology that we're doing as a kind of back end to something like Lightstream. And then when the data is replicated, it just preserves a much more rigorous consistency and data integrity model. And so as a developer, like rather than then having to, for instance, adjust your application to do things like remove constraints and change your data model to be more kind of um, sort of AP aware, you can just kind of model your app as normal, talk to an SQL database, but then code without having to worry about getting a bunch of consistency errors or integrity stuff kind of bubbling up into your application where you're suddenly going, 
hey, I thought that all users had to have a profile image and somehow you've lost referential integrity because of the replication. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing now, this is if I use something like vaccine, my ecto, you know, layer, I'll have less ecto errors <laughs> and I am down with that. <laughs> when you're developing an app in ecto, say, it's just very normal to do things like add a unique constraint into your migration, or you say you, you put a non-null onto a foreign key when you're defining a relationship, right? And, and, and basically, because of various technical constraints, when you try and then move that to one of these sort of geo-distributed database models, you basically lose those. And that's one of the key things that we're trying to add back in is allowing you to specify those types of constraints as you do normally say in your Hecto schema or migrations. And then we, we do some clever stuff to basically be able to preserve those types of constraints on top of a geodistributed database. That's cool. Okay. Because I know that that is like commonly a story of why companies that think they're going to be storing lots of data will need to go to, I'm going to use air quotes here, web scale solutions. And that means uh, Mongo in a lot of different places. And, th and the way that they do that is by removing integrity, like you said, like when they have to store a key to, to, to refer to another object, they, they just store the key. There is no, there is nothing there to make sure that that exists. And then consequentially, they just have to do another lookup, another query to go do the lookup for that 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 object over there, and hopefully to, it, it exists. Or you just store the string and don't even <laughs> store a reference. It, right, right, and that's what that is. It's just a string of the of the ID or whatever it is, right? Yeah, but but then you're moving the workload back into the application to say you have to resolve it there. Yeah, like so. This is this is this is my app at this point, like my everyday you know dumb app now having to like adjust its logic around database you know constraints of, of some sort and i am not down with that <laughs> <laughs> so when we talked with ben johnson about lightstream one of the things he mentioned was that other people were interested in this idea of modeling logical changes and replicating those and i think that's really what you're talking about here with the crdt so do i have that right yes in a way i mean if you <laughs> I mean, it, it nuances of different replication models, but exactly when you have a CRDT object, for instance, um, or a CRDT sort of type, then it provides like a function interface to apply certain logical operations to it. So you'll like, you'll send a kind of increment one as a kind of op operation rather than sort of assigning the value. If you, if you imagine yourself just starting with a kind of, um, like a sort of binary kind of, uh, replication log, you would want to adapt it into logical operations to be able to feed it into a CRDT system to have the same type of guarantees in your replication layer that, that we can do. I just want to comment on the names. So we've got Antidote DB is an Erlang database that you're building this on, which has a thing called Cure, and then you are Vaccine and what you're providing on top of that. I, just, I love the naming. It's just fun that you had continued on with the theme. Well, it sounds like you're carrying a disease here. What's the, what's the <laughs> disease? What's what's the... Uh... Global replication. <laughs> Wait, no, no, no. We want that though. Global replication. That's, we don't want to cure that. Yeah. What, what are you guys combating here? What's the disease that's spreading? I think typically it's like, yeah, you look at the cap theorem, you have to make a choice between consistent under partition or available under partitions because partitions are inevitable. If you imagine, say, say imagine a cloud provider's network, like say AWS or Google Cloud, they have different regions. Now, occasionally, basically the connectivity goes down between those regions, whether that's kind of TCP 
congestion or whether it's sort of some hardware kind of failing and things needing to move over. So you often end up with basically uh, not having connectivity between parts of your distributed system. So that's what this sort of partition basically means. And, and fundamentally, there's there's no getting away from them, even if as, as hard as you try, which is why you then get the choice between CP or AP. Yeah. And that's that's the interesting thing is you have the situation, they also call it like split brain the servers are still running in these two different regions and there may be still answering requests for people who are geographically close to them and connected to them. But now there's temporarily, possibly, just lost that connection between the different servers in that cluster or that that integrated system. And, and you basically make a choice between whether you make forward progress in that scenario or whether you stop and wait for the network to heal. And if we go back to those kind of air quotes of web scale, Typically, systems end up having to make the trade-off that you uh, preserve availability because you still want to be able to take payments, you want to keep still sell products. So there's a lot of these kind of global systems which will require availability. And so the cure kind of protocol comes from the perspective of saying, okay, given that you will choose availability and partitions are inevitable, let's try and cure inconsistency. Inconsistency is kind of the disease. Ah, thank you. There it is. And it is that the naming is exactly as you it's like antidote implements the cure protocol vaccine is a delivery mechanism for the antidote. And also just because it's an because it's elixir, you kind of mix the X in there. And, uh, <laughs> it's a nice little naming convention. Perfect. Nice. So I would love to hear a little bit more about antidote DB because I had never heard of that before. Uh, I'd heard of couch DB. I've actually played with that. That's another Erlang database. It's actually multi-master, eventually consistent and you know, you're not using SQL to talk to it. So maybe you can give us a little intro to what Antidote DB is. I mean, Antidote is an absolutely fantastic system. It is a planet scale, highly available database. It's a it's a key to CRDT object store. It has clustering where you have a, a cluster of database nodes within a region. So that's kind of intra-region. And with those, it partitions and shards out the data so you can store very large data sets. And then it has inter-region asynchronous replication. And it implements this cure protocol of transactional causal plus consistency, which is transactional causal consistency with CRDTs. It's been developed over the last, say, sort of 10 years through a couple of very large European funded projects, um, Syncfree and Litecone, and piloted by the same group of academics who invented CRDTs and made a number of other advances in this kind of consistency research. And it kind of went from, a, if, I, if I get the history right, it went from a kind of almost like a, a research toolkit that was used to kind of experiment and test different kind of consistency modes for distributed systems to sort of consolidating into this um, particular database system. It's formally verified as being the strongest possible consistency mode for an AP system. And it's kind of functional, it's documented, it's packaged in Docker, you can take it for a spin today. But in a way, I guess it's it's a slightly limited model in the sense that it's this sort of key value interface. And as an Erlang system as well, it has kind of various bindings to other languages, but uh, uh, some of those are kind of more mature than others. And, and the sort of primary interfaces are kind of fairly sort of low level beam stuff, which typically maps, of course, to a sort of distributed system research community, but isn't necessarily so easy to use if you're trying to fire up a CRUD app on top of it. So I just want to point out, we have links to this in the show notes, but the Antidote is a GitHub project. So, you know, you're talking about this planet scale, very advanced sounding software, and it is open source. I just want to point that out. And it is uh, all written in Erlang. 
How do you interact with that database? So that's where I think vaccine starts to come in because it doesn't sound like it's a SQL database. I'm not going to be writing SQL queries, SQL fragments. How do I query anything from it? What does that look like for me as a developer? Uh, it's a bit like a key value store, but instead of just assigning a value, for, uh, you can specify different CRDT objects as the types. And each of those types provides a different set of um, operations or a function interface. You basically um, address objects like a key value store, but when you're making a write, you kind of send it the instructions for what you want it to do. Insert this element or kind of increment this counter, um, as opposed to kind of this is, the, this is your new value. Uh, and that's within a interactive transactional context. So it's one of the things that's quite advanced about the protocol is it provides what's called highly available transactions. So it's kind of atomic transactions for a highly available system. So you can do interactive multi-key operations. So you could, for instance, initiate a transaction, read a value, and then dynamically based on the value of that, perform multiple other um, updates. And it kind of handles that transactionally and uh, it has a kind of rigorous implementation of multi-version concurrency control and handles kind of snapshots and, and, it, and it preserves this model of causal consistency, which basically means that if, for example, you've written some data because you saw some other data, no, no one, no other part of the distributed system will see your write before they see the data that you kind of based it on. So it preserves this kind of happens before relationship, even as messages are replicated asynchronously and potentially out of order sort of across this global system. Maybe this is a good place to jump into vaccine. And because I know you mentioned that Elixir is more involved with this part of the project, as well as Ecto. So how are you leveraging Ecto with this unique data structure and data store? Yeah, I think um, probably coming at this kind of as a generalist developer, it was kind of obvious looking at Antidote that it's an incredible system and incredibly powerful. But if you want to kind of use it for general app development, that's quite difficult. So one of the things that we wanted to do is basically adapt the interface that Antidote provides to a relational data model that kind of developers are more familiar with. And because it's a Beam-based system and we were used to developing in Elixir, it just made sense to then target Ecto as a kind of integration point. So because Ecto is basically, I guess it was a, probably originally designed as a data access library for SQL databases, and then it's kind of matured, but it has an adapter interface that allows you to kind of plug in different database systems. Ecto is a natural integration target to say, well, if we can allow developers to express models and constraints and relationships and then work with data using Ecto change sets and standard repo functions, then that's kind of how you're used to developing applications. We do some work behind the scenes to basically sort of adapt that to the kind of antidote storage, try to kind of mask as much of that complexity as possible. So really, I mean, there were sort of three things we wanted to, to do to build on the Antidote system. One is help to productionize it because there's a various kind of known issues around that sort of may come back to bite you if you're running it in more production workloads, but then adapt it to a relational developer experience, starting with Ecto, and then also add back on the database guarantees I mentioned earlier. But, but partly building on by being able to specify them in Ecto using, say, the kind of uh, relationship DSL and Ecto migrations. And so our, our sort of goal was to basically make Antidote just usable from, say, a kind of standard Phoenix application 
and so you can almost just swap out your repo connection string to go, let's not use Postgres, let's kind of swap in vaccine and things just magically work. Even though kind of under the hood, what's happening is that a bit like with a system like, say, Foundation DB or, or Yugabyte, for example, there's a number of database systems which have shown how you can build a, an SQL layer on top of an underlying key value store. You know, and a lot of SQL systems kind of have that separation in their architecture. So it was about saying, right, you treat Antidote as a kind of special type of key value store that actually stores CRDT objects and does this magic replication. And then we, we can do the same type of patterns to build a, a kind of relational interface on top of it. Now, we haven't start biting off the whole task of uh, implementing like a full SQL database is quite large. So on the one hand, we're approaching it from the point of view of just piecing together what we can do, which is like, right, we can define a table and we can have relationships and we can start to do list queries and order queries and, and simple filter queries. On the other hand, we're also very interested to look at existing SQL databases or systems like Lightstream and thinking how, because we can support the relational model, we can then use those as the kind of front end kind of query system and database. And we're providing more of the kind of, um, sort of high consistency, high integrity replication underneath that. I was really surprised at how much you were already aware of Lightstream. And when, when that topic was brought up, it's like, no, no, you really understood it. <laughs> so that was very cool. I'm sure much further and deeper than my understanding as well. One of the things I think is interesting about like these CRDTs is you talk about like these materializing these views where you're applying all of these modifications and these changes into a view that you can use to say, well, this is given these data types being applied, this is what the data, uh, a finished view of that data would look like. So are you saying then that I might be able to say, have vaccine be that backend distributed replication that gives me the consistency and the and the those qualities that I care about for my data, but then it might materialize that into something like a SQLite database that I can just do normal SQL on. Uh, there's a model with these CRDT objects where you can have sort of lots of writes going into them, and you don't actually need to incur the cost of sort of running the merge algorithm to materialize the value until somebody comes along and wants to read it. So, so one of the use cases, I know, for instance, the React, which was a, um, a system that incorporated CRDTs that was often used as a sort of high data throughput kind of key value store, also implemented in Erlang. A lot of the use cases for that were kind of high data throughput writes when you then only occasionally Occasionally need to materialize the value. But if you think about that in a kind of um, a replication system, what you're able to do then is basically sort of write, write in the values into the CRDT and then exactly materialize out the value, potentially merging various concurrent updates to then sort of write it into either an existing database or an index if you're kind of building out your own database functionality. So one thing that I just keep wondering is, you talked about being an entrepreneur and, and starting up this company. What's the business model look like? How are you guys running a business off of this? Uh, so, so my background, I'm an entrepreneur and I've kind of been a venture builder. So, I, so I've been in this sort of world of uh, creating tech companies and uh, sort of uh, raising venture capital for them and sort of putting companies onto that funding track. So Vaccine is a venture funded company. We raised a pre-seed round led by Luna Ventures just at the end of January earlier in the year. 
and we see like there's a very big opportunity when you kind of re-envisage the future of database technology and you say well things are moving to the edge geo distribution is part of the future and, and and this is a kind of optimal technology that can kind of be a next generation to cp systems like say um sort of cockroach or spam and so i think that's sort of part of what's attractive in terms of being able to say like we're a very early stage company we don't have all the answers but 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 there is a big market opportunity for this sort of type type of technology which is sort of maybe help sort of put command some resources like in in a way what we need to do on the commercial side of this is identify the use cases where the technology really moves the needle for people and actually solves very practical problems today and so that's a kind of like like as you go through these kind of phases in building these types of companies we're in a kind of problem solution fit phase where like what we're doing is we're, we're trying to identify the right use cases and the right type of configurations to deliver value for people and and we've got a bunch of hypotheses around that from geo-distributed applications, an edge data plane for kind of geo-distributed functions. These CRDTs have great capabilities around multi-user, multiplayer apps as well. Um, and some of the configurations we were just talking about around um, a kind of advanced replication layer, for example. But fundamentally, what we then need to do is kind of see, first and foremost, we've got to work out this can be used to solve these problems to deliver value for people. And once we figure that out, then you kind of go into the stage of going, right, let's work out how to productize that. Then you kind of figure out how you might price it. Then you sort of figure out the business model. So to some degree, there's a lot of well-validated business models for open source software and open source database companies. And whether it's kind of providing a serverless system or managed hosting or kind of enterprise installs and supporting things on people's infrastructure or building your own kind of productized stuff on top of a differentiated software. But right now we we don't know which one of those we're going to take because we still just really need to get to first base about going where where is the real kind of immediate value where people are going to find this so useful that they're going to commit in some time and engineering resources into experimenting it whilst it's still quite um, relatively immature as database tech. Yeah, you mentioned this idea of like these business approaches. And I know when we talked with Superbase and what they were doing is basically taking Phoenix services like Phoenix Presence, Phoenix WebSockets and wrapping that up as a software as a service to front end developers who don't want to deal with the back end. I think it is definitely the case where there are customers out there who want help doing something and are willing to pay for that solution at that level, you know, at that deeper level then while you still have other people using the open source library and saying, you know, I'm able to use that fine without needing consulting services or anything like that. Do you see it that way? What we're trying to do, what we'd really like to do with the company is find an approach which is quite developer orientated. So just like Superbase, they've iterated very, very well through being uh, Postgres compatible. It's been very easy for people to kind of adopt and sort of drop it on top of their existing apps. And you know, we, we'd love to be able to kind of emulate that pathway as opposed to going a more sort of enterprise sales approach where you're sort of slogging your, your database tech around kind of big companies. It's a challenge because in some cases, because what we're doing is this sort of global geo distribution, you kind of immediately think of sort of large companies uh, or people kind of running apps with a, with a global user base. But yeah, really what, what we're hoping to be able to do is kind of wrap things up into a, an easy turnkey kind of developer experience, have people choose to kind of use the technology because they like the kind of patterns and they like the developer experience. And 
a bit like, say, something like Redis. Like Redis was a kind of um, almost a, it was very sort of developer-led initially. It was this cool data structure server. You could use it for inter-process communication. The moment you heard about it, you sort of experimented with it. And then it was like 10 years later, it sort of becomes essential in every enterprise tech project. And the enterprises kind of pull it into them rather than you sort of trying to bash down the front door. So we're a bit allergic to enterprise sales, basically, but uh, we may find ourselves we may find ourselves knocking on those doors eventually. We also see, um, just an, as an aside, one of the uh, potential uh, applications of the technology is as, a, is as a database for space systems. There's something particular about causal consistency because it can tolerate very long distances that uh, maps well to kind of systems that would be deployed out onto kind of satellites or other planets. Um, and of course, selling into space systems probably takes four times as long as enterprises. So <laughs> we, we, may, we may find ourselves doing something even harder. But it'll be the database that, you know, connects uh, Mars and Earth and, and, and the state space stations and the lunar colonies. Yep. Once you go into space, you have this sort of essential rel relativism of kind of people's perspectives. And so you have these CP systems, which we talked about for distributed databases. They're all based on mapping things to a total order, which means that there's only one order that things happened in. But actually, once you kind of move into space, there's no such thing as a total order because the distances are so big that everyone has a different perspective. So you kind of have to actually adapt your kind of distributed systems thinking to this more relativistic universe, which, as it happens, this kind of cure protocol and model of causal consistency just kind of fits perfectly because it's all based on who happens to have seen things from their own perspective. Interesting. Okay, so I got it. This is a quick aside, but have you seen Interstellar, the movie? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so you know the planet where, with the big tide on it where they're near the black hole. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine a database scenario here. <laughs> <laughs> that can handle yeah. that? Yeah, over like, what is it? Like every second is a year or something like that for them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to make it mainframe compatible so it can work with existing banks too. So that'll be fun. <laughs> it's, it's DeFi across the, across the galaxy. One of the things you mentioned was the, the stage of development that vaccine is currently. So if I'm looking at this technology and I'm thinking, wow, is this right for me? I have different level of risk tolerance because maybe it's a personal project. I'm really wanting to experiment with something. And, you know, who is this right for at this point where you are right now? Would you say this is production ready or for production ready for this type of situation? Kind of what guidance could you give? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very much not production ready. We sort of started development work and sort of coming together as a team just sort of earlier this year. So it's been maybe sort of two or three months now of kind of uh, sort of um, development in anger. And there's, there's an awful lot of stuff we need to do. We're an open source project with vaccine as well. So Antidote is Apache 2, all the vaccine code is Apache 2. We have an open Discord. It's the kind of thing where if you're interested in this type of tech, like CRDTs or distributed databases, we're trying to kind of develop in public, basically, and, and sort of piece things together. So I would say it's it's a project to keep an eye on and potentially start tinkering with as we're sort of uh, like we've we've already now surfaced up an ecto adapter and we have some example applications that you can play with for example and as we continue to do more of that I'd hope that if it's interesting you can kind of come and come and tinker with it and sort of give us an idea of what you might be interested in using it for and then maybe you know it, it it maybe takes a little bit of time, maybe over the next year or so, to kind of get to a point where it could be a kind of viable system to say sort of build out an app that isn't so mission critical. And in truth, it probably takes longer than that to get to a point where, of course, you're trying to if you're trying to build out mature database technology, there's an awful lot of engineering work to get something to the point where you could run sort of large scale mission mission critical workloads through it. And 
that's all sort of all part of the challenges that we have ahead, basically. So because it's all being developed in public eye, are you looking for people to contribute? You're saying, yeah, we want people to try it out, get it, give us feedback, experiment. Is there a place where people can jump in and say, you know, this is a really interesting problem. I want to contribute to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's probably some challenges compared with some other projects where certainly some of the core tech's quite complex. You've got to be quite specialist to be able to kind of work on things at the antidote layer or the sort of rich CRDT layer and, and sort of have an understanding of some of the sort of subtleties of the consistency guarantees and so forth. But equally, there's a bunch of stuff um, at, for instance, some of the developer APIs and some of the tooling. And there's definitely, if, if anyone's interested in getting involved and contributing, we'd love to chat to them. And there's a whole bunch of things to kind of uh, sink your teeth into particularly interested to talk to people who would kind of see this and see potential use cases and just sort of help steer that kind of um, mode we're in at the moment where we're just trying to understand where the technology can be used to provide most value immediately. So you mentioned that you've come together as a team just in January, like officially, like we're being funded now. Can you talk a little bit about your team or how you got started, who your co-founder is or what that looks like? In a sense, the sort of company came out of um, the conversations um, that I had, um, having discovered some of the research that academics like Mark Shapiro and Nuno Pregothea and Annette Bieniusa had, had done on, on the kind of consistency research and Antidote TB. And it was interesting. We were having some conversations and they were unanimously all saying, you need to talk to this guy, Volta. So uh, Volta Belegas, who was a, a researcher who'd worked with them, but moved on into industry and been working on building out, I think, the managed MySQL service at Oracle. And he was based in Lisbon. So I went down to Lisbon and met him. And he had pioneered a bunch of the research into adding invariant safety. So sort of database guarantees back on top of these kind of AP database systems. So it was basically meeting him that the kind of concept for vaccine came together, where we sort of saw it as this kind of rich CRDT system building out on Antidote TB. And we basically founded the company together, established a formal collaboration with the academics who are now kind of advising the, the project, raised some first funding, and then that allowed us to go into a, a hiring phase. And we basically had four awesome founding engineers join the team who kind of specialize at sort of different levels of distributed system or kind of product engineering. And so that's pretty much how, how we got up and running. Also, um, previous co-founder of mine on an edtech company, Parva, who is based in San Francisco. Um, so she's working with me on a kind of growth and community engagement side. And that's been very, very helpful at being able to then engage with developers in the US and just kind of understand kind of how they see some of the use cases and potential uses for the technology. That's really cool because I do think... That as we move into the future and we, as our tech industry evolves, we are going to see more and more distributed because I think just that's the way the world is. As users of tech and just social media, we take it for granted that a lot of things are global and that we should be able to interact and have collaboration with people all over the world. And I think people are going to be wanting to build their systems that model that. And that's one of the reasons I joined Fly is because I think that is something that makes sense. And Fly is attempting to attack that problem in hosting. But there's also like what you're talking about here is we still need to think about our databases and how we can build our and architect our systems to really embrace that distributed nature. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. Do you have any uh, upcoming features or anything that you can share about what's coming up in the future? Yeah, I mean, I 
I mean, but just to say with what you're saying there, yeah, I mean, Fly was definitely one of the inspirations behind the company, kind of seeing seeing that as a platform for geodistributed hosting and kind of one of the sort of indicators of that sort of trend. And yeah, definitely agree around, you sort of see now a kind of future of work where people have kind of moved over to remote and teams can be kind of more distributed. And suddenly it's very normal to have kind of people in different parts of the world all sort of collaborating where previously a lot of people were in the same office together. And I think those kind of trends will sort of continue long term. And it's sort of definitely part of a sort of vision of how sort of data geodistributes and kind of moves, moves to the edge. And that's one of the things that we want to be able to, to enable. What we're working on at the moment is we have been building a subscription system on top of Antidote and we've been working on our Antidote to Ecto integration. So one of the things is surfacing up a kind of fully featured Ecto adapter so that you can uh, define kind of um, simple relational models with kind of related tables and a mixture of primitive types and CRDT types. And then we're connecting that with a, a subscription system so that, for example, if you're developing something like a live view application, you can have magic real-time collaboration just sort of bound onto the socket, but still just working with sort of standard Ecto schemas. So that's a really exciting one. And we sort of touched earlier on um, the kind of differences between, say, writing like against a tentative write system versus, say, sort of writing with certainty to a CRDT. And one of the things that we see is that as a multi-user system, when you write with certainty, it eliminates a whole bunch of flaws and anomalies that you get building multi-user software. So one of the things as well we want to show is how you can use vaccine to basically simplify developing much more rock-solid collaboration software in Phoenix and LiveView. So that's definitely that's definitely one of the, th the things to maybe keep an eye on over the next kind of two to three months. And uh, hopefully we'll sort of surface some of that up as some um, kind of documented APIs and examples. And again, if you're interested in the project, that's exactly the kind of thing you could come and play with. I think that's all very exciting. I'm very interested in seeing where things go. And as you develop, please let us know if there's something that you have that's ready to share with people, because I think a lot of people will find this very interesting. Well, if people want to follow you online or get involved with the project, where should they go to do that? So the, the website is vaccine.io. It's V-A-X-I-N-E.io. And uh, we have a, an open community Discord. So you can see a link from the top right of the website to, to jump into the Discord. And that, that's a great place to maybe come. And we do weekly updates and you can kind of generally see the, um, the kind of ongoing updates and the work going on. Uh, we're on GitHub at um, vaccine-io organization. We have a Twitter, which is uh, vaccine.io. But basically, it's all on the website. You can kind of find the links there. Awesome. Well, thank you, James. I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with us and share this project that you've been working on, but also the grand vision of what it is you're trying to enable and how we as Elixir and Phoenix developers who are already, because we work in this, this system, that which is the Beam ecosystem, we have the ideas and the fundamentals for doing distributed things and building distributed systems. And I just love that you guys are taking that building on top of Antidote DB and making it more accessible, more consumable by us as you know the quote unquote regular Elixir developers building regular systems. I think that's just fascinating. Awesome. Well, look, thanks so much for having me and taking the time to talk it through. It's been a really interesting chat. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.